Good evening, good evening, good evening, good evening. Are we excited? No, are we excited? No, are we very excited? Yes. Well, I'm very happy that you're excited because boy, oh boy, am I ever excited. My name is Paul Holdengraber. And I'm the director of Live from the New York Public Library. You have heard me say that my goal at the library is to make the lions roar. Well, guess what? Tonight, my goal is to make the lions rap. <laughs> Last time we were here, we had Keith Richards here at the library. It's a great honor tonight to have Jay-Z. And... As far as I'm concerned, there's a, great, there's a great continuity here, partly because there is continuity, partly because Jay-Z has been around for 20 years and Keith Richards has stood his own as well. So the library is roaring, we're making it live, we're making it come alive, we're making the books dance, we're making a heavy institution levitate, and as I always ask, I've asked now for six years, if anybody in this building knows how much this library weighs, please tell me. I would like to encourage you all to join our email list, to become members of the library, to find out what we have coming up. For instance, on, when, on Thursday, we have Siddhartha Mukherjee coming, talking about a biography of cancer. On Monday, we have Zadie Smith coming here, who I will be interviewing. And then we have Derek Walcott, and we end the season with a tribute to the National Lampoon. We begin the season in January with a tribute to Gypsy Rose Lee. We actually have the archives of Gypsy Rose Lee, so you sh you're in for some burlesque. Finally, after the conversation tonight, um, Jay-Z will be signing his magnificent book, Decoded. So go to the back of the room and get it signed. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I would like to quickly thank Jana Fleischmann, Barbara Fillon, Julie Grau, as well as my producer, Meg Stemmler, for all they have done. A big round of applause. And then, 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 now, Cornell West. Cornell West. Cornell West is... I guess Cornell West is pretty popular. Cornell West is... Class of 1943, professor at Princeton University, my alma mater. His books include Race Matters, Democracy Matters, and most recently a book whose title I love, Brother West, Living and Loving Out Loud. A self-proclaimed bluesman in the life of the man, a jazz man in the world of ideas, Cornell West has appeared in both The Matrix Reloaded and The Matrix Revolutions as Counselor West, has released two spoken word albums and is currently working on various, various books he'll be talking to us about. With Tavis Smiley, he's the host of a newly launched public radio show, Smiley and West. Ladies and gentlemen, Cornell West. We don't need to escalate. You see, war is not the answer for only love. You know we've got to find a way 
Ladies and gentlemen, Sean Carter, Jay-Z, holds the records for the most number one albums by a solo artist, 11, and has been honored with 10 Grammy Awards. He is a co-founder of Rockaware Closing Line, Rockefeller Records, and Rock Nation, the former CEO of Def Jam Recordings. Jay-Z co-owns various restaurants, a cosmetics company, and the New Jersey Nets. His new memoir, Decoded, is one of the most extraordinary books I have read in the last decade. I have to tell you, this is a book of a great major poet. He belongs at the New York Public Library. Jay-Z! That's if you're still living And get on down to that old gym rhythm Here's a couple of jewels to help you get through your bit in prison A ribbon in the sky, keep your head high I, Young Vito, voice of the young people Mouthpiece for hustlers, I'm back, motherfuckers Your reign on the top was shorter than leprechauns You can't fuck with hoes, what type of ex you're on? I got great lawyers for cops, so dress warm Charges don't stick to duty, Teflon I'm too sexy for jail like I'm right, said Fred <laughs> I'm not guilty, now give me back my bread. Mr. District Attorney, I'm not sure if they told you I'm on TV every day. What the fuck could I go to? Well, 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 well. <laughs> what do we do now? Well, I tell you what we do now. What we do now is prove what I just said. And the way we do it, <laughs> the way we do it is by reading a passage. When I was a kid, my parents had, li had like a million records stacked to the ceiling in metal crates. They both loved music so much, when they did break up and get a divorce, sorting the records out was probably the biggest deal. If it was hot in the 70s, you write later, my parents had it. They had a turntable, they had, they, but they also had reel-to-reel. -reel. My parents would blast those classics when we did our Saturday cleanup and when they came home from work. I loved all that music, but Michael Jackson more than anyone. My mother would play Enjoy Yourself by the Jacksons, and I would dance and sing and spin around. I'd make my sisters my backup singers. I remember those early days and the time that shaped my musical vocabulary. I remember that music making me feel good, bringing my family together, and more importantly, being a common passion for, that my parents shared. The songs carried in them the tension and energy of the era. The 70s were a strange time, especially in black America. The music was beautiful in part because it was keeping a kind of torch lit in dark times. And finally, I feel like we rappers, DJ, producers, were able to smuggle some of the magic of that dying civilization out in our music and use it to build a new world. We were kids without fathers, so we found our fathers on wax and on streets and in history, and in a way, that was a gift. We got to pick and choose the ancestors who would inspire the world we were going to make for ourselves. That was a part of the ethos of that time and place, and it got built to the culture we created. Rap 
took the remnants of a dying society and created something new. Our fathers were gone, usually because they just bounced, but we took their old records and used them to build something fresh. Mm. Yeah. Um, you made that sound really good. <laughs> well, you know, it, 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 I, I needed I, I especially like you saying bounced. <laughs> With your accent, it's just really cool. Uh, well, uh, tell me why. What, how would you say it? No, no, you said it perfectly. <laughs> Better than I could ever. So... This music, uh, when, you're, when your parents separated, and we, we heard that song at the beginning before we came on stage December 4th, when your parents separated, they separated the record collection. That record collection, in a, in a way, was what bound your family and kept your family together. Yeah, um, I, my house was like the, um, the good time house. I could just see Beehive right now. He's just having a great time over there. Uh, my cousin Brian is in the audience right now. He spent many days over there. But my house was like um, the house around the neighborhood that everybody went to because we had all the newest records and, you know, I just had super cool parents, um, which goes to show, like, they had their names on their, you know, records. They shared kids. They shared a home. They shared food. But, you know, those records were something that was so dear to them that they had their names on their individual records of who bought what. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, it, yeah, it was a very pivotal part for me. And it, it filled the house with joy and emotion and feeling. And it get, also gave me a, a very young, you know, a, a wide range of listening to different sorts of music. So I don't have those sort of prejudices. When it comes to music, I just pretty much like good music and bad music. You know, if you look on my um, iPod, you know, mm. it's everything. Mm. It's everything from Mouse to, you know, to Tom York to uh, Old Dirty Bastard. You will, yeah, lose, you will lose me at times. I approach part of this, um, I, I have to tell you, with, with a... No, I, I approach... No, no, I, I'm telling you. I, I approach part of this with the euphoria of ignorance. Um, and that is in That's how we approach life. Yeah, and, and I have to tell you, that is what was so striking about mm. your uh, memoir, Decoded, is it just, I, Jay-Z, I just was not ready to be bowled over the way I am. Partly mm. because I grew up, you know, listening to various versions of the magic flute. Yeah. So our, our childhood is somewhat different. A little bit. And, and so I, I grew up with, you know, is Vilma Lip the best? Right. And, and the, the reason I know about... You, you will lose me at times. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think at the core of who we are, That's we're, right. we're, we're human beings. If you That's take right. away the titles of who we are, black, white male, female, you take away that, we all have the same emotions. Who do you love? You love your mother. You know, we, you love your father. Your father abandoned you. You feel hurt. It affects your relationship going for, forward. Your father wants you to be just like him. You can't be just like him. It builds some sort of insecurity inside you. So at the end of the day, we're all human beings. Right. 
you know. So these emotions and, and feelings inside this music, you know, is, is a conversation. And just like you said, this book was necessary for me because it had that conversation with you. I, I wrote this book in part, me, uh, me and Mr. Mm. West, brother West, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. had a conversation at my dining room table one time. He was came to my house with a... Uh, uh, brother, brother Jeffrey, Jeffrey Canada, Jeffrey who Canada. runs a children's zone up in Harlem. That's and we right. had this beautiful conversation about language and about uh, the use of language and rap being more responsible for um, the things we say. And I try to explain in some way of why we say these things. Because anything, any lyric or any music without context is a lie. You know, if I tell you that N.W.A. said, fuck the police you would look and say those guys are gangster rappers and they shouldn't be saying things like that until the Rodney King beatings, which gave it context. And you knew this was what happened in their neighborhood. It was getting, uh, it was police brutality and it was um, an excessive amount of force. And they would take some gang members and drop them off in their rival gang members' neighborhood and tell them to get home. That was a, that was fun. Mm-hmm. You you know so with without context and now if you you yes. not saying the decisions that we made were right or wrong because we were no, young you're, boys you're very, we were sixteen very honest but it's honest yeah. it's like here's what happened now as a moral person you could decide what decisions you would have made you know there's a movie called John Q that you know I use this uh, as well like the movie is about uh, this man's fight to save his son you know mm. and is here it is this black man inside a hospital with a gun. If I told you that, you say there's no reason on earth why anyone should be in a hospital with a gun. But then, you know, given the context of his son is dying and he's trying to save his dying son, maybe you say, well, he didn't have to bring the gun. But given the context, you can understand the reasons why people come to these choices that they make good, bad, or indifferent, That's right. you know? Yeah. And that was a wonderful uh, discussion we had, and you were kind enough, as you recall, to come to Princeton. Yes. At my seminar with brother kind enough. Eddie I was Clark. on it. I was in Princeton oh, discussing no, Horace was, and Biggie. It was it was it was a moment because we had Jay Z here and Tony Morrison on my left. Yeah. Felicia Rashad on my on my, the left with Tony Morrison, and I recall I was talking about Plato and Socrates and how Plato had decided, owing to a deep sense of loss and mourning, to make the world safe for Socrates so that people would remember the name of Socrates forever. And you said, well, I have been playing Plato to Biggie Socrates. And that hit all of us so hard because it showed the degree to which your sense of history, both in regard to another lyrical genius like yourself, both in regard to another artistic giant like yourself, who's part of the black tradition, the American tradition, the modern tradition, uh, and this contemporary postmodern, late modern, everyone, whatever term you want to use. But this issue of context is for me so very important because see, when, when I look at you and see your humanity, when I hear you and remain attuned to the genius, I say to myself, what a great tradition, what a great people. Because the black musical tradition, as I understand it, is in part an anti-terrorist activity. 
<laughs> it's the history of terrorism coming at black people, the history of trauma coming at black people, history of stigma coming at black people, and the response from spirituals under slavery to blues under Jim and Jane Crow to Marcy Projects. And there's a lot of Marcy Projects in America. That's now. right. It's where the terror and the trauma and the stigma still there. And the response is what? Unbelievable, oratorical, linguistic, musical response trying to make sense of the world. And, of course, it's going to be shot through with all kinds of blindnesses because we all have our blindnesses in our own forms of ignorance. It could be learned ignorance, quasi-learned ignorance, non-learned ignorance, whatever it is. We all have it one way or another. But you have decided to keep this tradition alive in such a powerful way, though, brother. And that's why, for me, I'm always just inspired as well as instructed when I'm in your presence. But my question to you would be where you are now. I mean, at the 11 hours, though, brother. At what? After 11 hours. Not just number one, but representing high levels. Because there's a sense in which quantity is important. But Curtis Mayfield never won a Grammy. We know how great he is. You see what I mean? So there's a question, question of quality. You produce in high quality, no matter how many you sell. But where you are now in your life in regard to this tradition and how you would want to try to speak to the younger generation. We got Brother Harry Belafonte right here in the front row. <laughs> brother Harry Belafonte in the front row. And you see, you see these two brothers together. You can see this flow. You see this flow, you see. Brother had the first, first million copies sold of an album, but at the same time, there's Paul Robeson in him. There's Du Bois in him. There's Ella Baker. There's Martin King in him. The same one when you, the song that you came out on. I want to represent where Rosa sat, Martin was shot, Malcolm was popped. The spirituality, the musicality, but also that unbelievable sense of engagement in the face of uh, the context that you were talking about. How would you characterize yourself right now in that regard? Uh, I just, uh, you know, in terms of, of this music and this form of music is, is the thing that literally saved my life. There's yeah, a good brother yeah. right there. His name is Emery, who's sitting right there, who I was with every single day of my life. Who, um, yeah, this brother hand, give him a hand. <laughs> who, unfortunately, got caught up into the circumstances of life, and you know he went away for an extended period of time as a young kid, as a kid making these uh, decisions. And I know absolutely, without a doubt, a hundred out of a hundred. Me and him would have been in the same place, exactly the same place, because we were together every single day. So my job, pushing the culture forward and leaving something that saved our life and saved my life, you know, in a better place and having that conversation with people, what this mean, what this music means to us and how we arrive at these decisions and why we make some of the decisions that we make is very important for me. You know, more important than having 11 number one albums. So that's very fun. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I absolutely. really like it. Absolutely. And, <laughs> and on the sidebar, I want to just say, you know, uh, uh, Mr. Belafonte, I'm very uh, happy that you're here today, and I'm very honored. Uh, I remember I have this photo on my wall. I have this wall of photo of all my inspirations and people that inspired me in my life. And there's this beautiful picture of Coretta Scott King, and she... It's beautiful in the sense of you can see the strength in her face, but there's, you could tell that there was turmoil happening, and it was like uh, brothers next to her with big shotguns, and everyone's around, and then there's you in the picture. 
and, and you know, like a protector of hers. And I was looking, and I was like, this guy's a musician, right? Or a movie star. Like, what is he doing there? You, and it made me realize that musicians, movie stars, and people, we have a, a greater responsibility to the world as well. So you were one of those inspirations for me, and I thank you. I'm, I'm very uh, inspired, really, and intrigued by this notion of context. Because one of the things that I was really not ready for in this, in this book was to see you become the critic of your own work. It's as if you became the Ezra Pound to T.S. Eliot. You became the person who was reviewing and studying with extreme clarity your own work. And so for those of you who don't yet know this book, and I would say that's probably everybody since this book is basically embargoed until tomorrow morning, but you're getting it tonight. I have news for you. There are about three dozen uh, tracks of Jay-Z that are commented by Jay-Z nearly line by line, nearly in a Talmudic way. You are... I mean it. it. I was not ready for this, but you have... What you have done here, which is extraordinary, is you have written down the history, set the record straight. Perhaps that would be a way of putting it. Set the record straight about these songs. Made people understand that reading carefully is extremely important. Reading between the lines is incre incredibly important. Reading against stereotypes is incredibly important. And what, what is striking about this, to my mind, so I have many, many, many questions embedded in all of this. What is striking to my mind is that you are also known, I read, to be the only rapper to rewrite history without a pen. And yet, <laughs> and yet, and yet you are, you are immobilizing in some way um, th these songs, giving them structure and form and telling the people who are reading this book you better read me carefully, because if you don't, you might miss a lot. So you are interested in the virtues of difficulty and complexity and ambivalence. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> but do say more. No, I will. That was giving a little space and pause to what you said. Um, the, for me, I'm, you know, we all are complex human beings. There's nothing is simply uh, black and white. You know, there's, there are multiple reasons that why we arrived at such decisions or any decisions made. You can't just say this person is from this, per this, this particular part of a planet and he's that way. You know, it, it's impossible to, again, it's impossible without context to tell a story because you'll be telling some sort of lie. So for me, uh, it was just very important to give these stories context and not, and not, and not just, uh, you know, give excuses to everything we've done. We've made bad decisions. We've arrived at bad decisions. We've done bad things. Uh, but, you know, without proper context, it's very difficult to arrive at that decision. It was very important for me to have these conversations. Uh, in part, you know, uh, Oprah Winfrey was a big reason I wrote this book. Um, 
we can hide another conversation, you know, about language and about the N-word and about things like that. And we walked away from that conversation. We actually walked away from that conversation saying, let's agree to disagree. But we walked away from the conversation with a better understanding of who each of us, who we were in this world. And we had more things alike than, you know, than, you know we had more things alike than some dissimilar, you know. Uh, we both come from uh, very tough upbringings and tough backgrounds, and we both arrived at this book called Seed of the Soul, and it was like a and breaking she, point for us. And she was amazed that you should love this book the way she did. Right. And that changed the way she perceived you. Right. What did that change in her, her, her attitude to you based on you loving a book that she loved tell you about her? It made her realize, again, the conversation made her realize, wait a minute, we do have similar things and we do search for the same things. And we all looking for the, because, I mean, if you look at that book, you're looking for some sort of answers, right? We're looking for some sort of answers to why we are here and what do we, what is our real purpose and, you know, what is our greater purpose and how did we get here, et cetera, et cetera. And, and for me, these things are just conversation. This book is another form of, music was the conversation. It was the conversation for us. We had a conversation together. And I mean, people who listened to the music. But then there were people listening to the music and, and knowing the words, memorizing the words, but not knowing its deeper meaning. You know, and then hearing certain buzzwords and saying, wait, because you got to figure from the beginning, rap was dismissive. Every, everything about rap, it was, dis, it was very dismissive. Rap is a fad. It won't be here 10 years. That's how it started. And then it's like, it won't last. And then it's, oh, these guys only talk about this and that. That's so black and white to say. That's, you know, they only talk about bitch and hoe. And, and I, uh, um, <laughs> I mean, I, I must say that reading your book, my vocabulary did expand. Yeah. But, but, but. You, you have uh, that analysis, which I think is so... And I'm a big proponent, not to cut you off, because just nope. to finish that last point. And I'm a big proponent of, of people's actions and intent and not words and not language. So we remove language. And that, and that, that word means a, so, a whole, the N-word, means a whole entire different thing to Oprah Winfrey. You know, she come from a generation that, that people were getting hung from a tree, and that's the last thing they heard. So she has a deeper connection. But the point that you did make to Ofra there in the epilogue yeah. is very important, namely that in Ofra is an entrepreneurial genius, but she's subject to critique like all of us. When she sponsors a, <laughs> but when she's when she sponsors a film like Precious, there's a whole lot of derogatory things going on in that film. Or right. even writers who use the N-word. Right. Why is it that it's all right for them to use the N-word, but when the hip hop artists come along then she holds them at arm's length. She has to be more consistent in that regard. Now, if she's making the point about misogyny and homophobia and so forth, that's different because she got a lot of evidence. Uh, I, I, but, I, but, but in terms of her being consistent, you came right back at her and you had a Socratic exchange. And that's what I'm saying. It's yeah. about the, I, she left that conversation with a deeper understanding and yes, left this yes. book, even this book, yes with a deeper understanding of who I was. And we all evolved as human beings, and Absolutely. we all have to learn more Absolutely. about, you know, one another. It's just, Absolutely. that's life. Well, I mean, one of the things I love about both of these towering artists is that they have the courage to be themselves. You all have the courage to be yourself. When I first met you, it was clear to me, and I've met a whole lot of black folk in my life, 
<laughs> it was clear to me the brother had the courage to be himself. What did you say about your grandmother saying about when she's 19? Oh, yeah, when my grandmother told, told me a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, I love that, that line. The older you get, the more you look like yourself. And I, I have there's a song called PSA where I say you are who you are before you got here. It's the same exact conversation. So, uh, again, yeah. public service yeah, announcement, yeah. right? And yeah. when we have these conversations, yeah. again, we realize I, that this language is. I love, I love that um, the commentary you have on 99 problems and that one line, which I can't quite say that everybody constantly misunderstood or oh, the b word the yeah. B word. yeah 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 for me help, it was, help me out for me it was like i was being because rap at point at sometimes is provocative as well i was being provocative i thought it was deeply funny that people that <laughs> people hear certain <laughs> words and just immediately hear white noise after that it's almost like mm. i don't hear anything else he's talking about that and i it struck me as deeply funny so i i, I kind of did it on purpose and the word meant what? That sentence meant, well, in fact. The, 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 uh, the song is 99 Problems, but a bitch ain't one. And uh, the second verse deals with uh, this, this exchange between people. You know, here you have this guy who's in the car and he has, you know, drugs on him. And he's all the way in the wrong. And he's going on the highway. And here you have this cop who's uh, on the turnpike. And he pulls the car over, not because they have drugs on, in the car, but because the driver is black, which happened a lot. If you look at the survey during those times in between 88 to 96, there was a big uh, 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 investigation about that driving while black. So this officer pulls... A 2010. Yeah. <laughs> 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 That's it, <yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> So they pull the car over, he pulls the car over, and they have this exchange. And both guys are used to getting their way. So the driver knows he's in the wrong, but he knows he hasn't done anything to be pulled over. So this, you know, the line in the song, I was doing 55 and the 54. There's no such thing as a 54. I was actually doing the speed limit, and he pulled me over for no reason. So there's small lines in there that say so much. And he, he pulls me over and said... Are you carrying a weapon on you? I know a lot of you are. That blanket statement tells you what sort of person he is. A lot of you are. Are you carrying a weapon on you? You know, a lot of you are. And this guy knows a bit about the law because he's used to breaking it. So he knows how. <laughs> so he's protecting himself. He knows you can't go in my glove compartment without a search warrant. And you can't do, go in my trunk. You can't go in anywhere that your hands can't see or reach without, you can't open a locked glove compartment unless you have, um, you know, the proper search warrant. And the, the officer's retort was, are you some type of lawyer or something? <laughs> So it's this conversation between these two people, and he's waiting for a K-9 unit to come. A K-9 unit comes, we're all in trouble because the K-9 smells the drugs, car gets pulled over, boom, we get locked up. But somehow the K-9 was on another call, and he couldn't hold us but for so long. So we pull off, and as we pull off, about five minutes down the road, we see a car screeching, lights blaring, and we look, and we see K-9 unit coming up the highway so I have 99 problems but that bitch ain't one <laughs> 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 and, 
And that just struck me as yeah, deeply funny that I tell that story and people think that it's about women in general. It's, just, it's my sense of humor. But, you know, and for me, it raises the question of uh, what sits at the center of your uh, artistic, but also your, your social perspective. You say that the aim of the text is to establish that rap is poetry, that it tells a story, and that it connects with all of us as human beings. And that you've found your voice, even when you listen to other giants like Rakim and Karras One and all the great ones who came before, Big Daddy Kane, all of those folk are inside of you Absolutely. as part of your tradition. You said, oh, my voice is going to be the voice of what's inside of the mind of the hustler. It's almost like Push a Man uh, of Curtis Mayfield, you see, that the, uh, this, this notion of what is it like to get inside of the world, the mind, the soul of the hustler, given dilapidated housing, low-quality education, police always coming at you, the fear of capture and confinement, which is the experience of too many young brothers and sisters of all colors, poor but disproportionately black, brown, and red. You said, that's going to be the voice that I examine. And that has been the voice Absolutely. in the 11, in the 11 hours. Let's take a minute to listen to three. You got the time for some courtesy? of getting inside of the hustling, what I've always wanted to wrestle with in your work is what is the relation between hustling and all of its varieties, the role of honor, respect, wondering what, who's coming at you, with the freedom fighter. What is the connection between hustling and freedom fighter? How does a hustler become a freedom fighter or how is a freedom fighter a kind of hustler that rechannels energy against institutions and structures as opposed to, to simply getting over but I, I don't have an answer to, to this question though, though. Right. but I've been thinking about it I think <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, um, the hustling freedom fighter are, are similar and you know it's, it's, it's this anti uh, countercultural movement you know, one is one is about uh, it's about freedom and about having things and about uh, uh, improving your position. Yeah, and then yeah. at some point it gets lost in the, in that translation and it becomes about greed and it comes about adrenaline and it comes about the the excitement, the excitement of getting away with something that you're not supposed. I mean, if we're being honest about it, you know, at some point the excitement of getting away with it, the excitement of driving fancy cars and things, and, you know, so that level, the, the difference to me between that, the hustler and the freedom fighter is a level of maturity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
because on page 17, when you talk about Chuck D, you said there's conscious, or what we call politically conscious in, in Minority Report and other examples in your corpus, highly politically conscious, there's no doubt about that. But, but I thought you used the word conscious and anti-hustler. Do you remember saying that in that sentence? Anti-hustler. So I was thinking, does that mean then that when we think of somebody like a Curtis Mayfield, Gil Scott Heron, somebody like uh, 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 Nina Simone, that they are anti-system, but also anti-hustler? Or are there hustling elements inside Absolutely, because there's so many different meanings of, of yes, hustler, yes, right? Yeah. There's, there's almost like all good. You know, if someone passed away, oh, man, it's all good. Yeah. It's not all good. <laughs> right, yeah. but there's so many different meanings to hustler. What I meant was when I, in that particular instance, I'm talking about street hustler, oh, and maybe okay. I should have clarified it a little better no, with no, street no. hustler, but, um, mm -hmm. you know, Chuck D was a, a magnificent hustler. You know, hustle also means to apply yourself, you know, to yeah. improve yeah. your position, to use things at your disposal and means to be successful in a society that's built for you to fail. You have to have some sort of hustle to um, overcome those odds. I, I mean, I've been to where Chuck D is from. He's from Long Island. It's a very yeah. difficult neighborhood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Parts of it. Yeah. Not the Hampton style. <laughs> <laughs> but you, 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 you say in the book on, on several occasions, hustler first, artist second. Yeah. The, my spirit and soul. You know, my spirit and soul was birthed out of it. I was born in Marcy Projects, you know. Uh, the opportunities that were afforded us there were very few and we didn't have even the people that made it out of there we didn't have role models who would come back and speak to us and say man this is how you do it and you have to have this sort of thing the people that were speaking to us was the hustlers they, they, they were the only ones who had a conversation with us on how to be men and how to be have integrity and honesty and loyalty and, and that's what I mean is complex how complex human beings can be. You know, here's a guy who's basically selling destruction to his whole own neighborhood, but he's telling you, you know, he's giving you um, things that help you become a man. So he's feeding you life at the same time he's destroying life. And yet, and yet the book begins in, in a most magnificent way. Um, after the dedication to your father, and we may talk a little bit maybe about your father and how mother and father. your yeah. mother and yeah. father, but Gloria your father who, who yes, you yes, reconciled yeah. your, your, yourself with just months before he died and, and your mother who we heard on that tape. And mm -hmm. I love the fact that you, you, you can be naughty, right? Because you, 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 you recorded your mother without her knowing that she would be recorded for this. Well, no, 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 that's a little too uh, deceitful. What I did was, it was her birthday, and uh, I knew she would be nervous if, she, if I told her that I was going to record her. So I told her to meet me at the studio. We were going to have lunch for her birthday. And when she got there, I said, why don't you just um, talk on this racket right here and, and see what happens. Once she got in the booth, she was just, I couldn't stop her. <laughs> <laughs> she, but, had, she had <laughs> stories to tell about you. Oh, she told some stories we had to cut out, like, you know. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you remember one? Huh? Do you remember one? <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> I, I, I love 
And this is, this is, you know, you uh, don't want me to tell it. No. I took it off the record for a reason. <laughs> no, but you know, and, and this is, I, I think here there's something about you in that. Yeah, 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 three times. Because one of the things that I find magnificent about this book is that you create for someone such as myself a sense of, I know this man, a sense of intimacy while creating and maintaining distance. Well, and I find that very, that, that, that mm, must be a very mm. complex dance. Yeah. I think that, um, again, it speaks to the similarities of our emotions. Like some of our emotions, I mean, most of our emotions are pretty much the same. You know, it, but, I, but it's told from a world far removed from who you are. So that's the distance that you feel between us is, you know, it's told from a world that you can't even imagine. You can't imagine, you can't imagine seeing the first person get shot at nine years old and that being normal to you or your friend died the next week. And then, or, or even looking at some photos, you know, me and uh, Ty, who's in the audience, who's my child friend as well, we, we looked on uh, some website and we were looking at photos of, you know, uh, kids that we grew up with. And it was like, man, I remember the day when he died and then he died next week. You can't even imagine those sort of emotions that didn't happen. So that the distance is um, who we are as individuals. What you feel, the, the intimacy that you feel is the emotions of, what everyone feels, angst, anxiety, fear, uh, aspiration, uh, you know, all these feelings that are universal once you take the labels of, off of who we are as individuals. But that raises the issue, though, of um, the kind of chronic social neglect and political abandonment of poor people in this society, especially in chocolate slices because the stories that you tell are stories that have to do with the, the sheer barbarity of a society that would allow precious and priceless young children to live these kinds of lives given the riches that we have. Now that, that is an indictment of a certain sort. There's no doubt about that. And yet at the same time, it's difficult to see what role the music will play as a form, not simply of reflection, but of resistance to highlight that barbarity. Because one of the ironies is that a lot of times people listen to hip hop and they think all oh, the barbarity resides among the poor people themselves rather than the right. situation and circumstances under which they have to live. Context. Yeah, back, to <laughs> back to context. It's going to be the theme of the night. I should have put context. But, but and, and yet... Um, the the very beginning of the of the book is is Jay Z, age nine, and I'll read the beginning. I, I I I'll read it with my inimitable accent. I saw the circle before I saw the kid in the middle. I was nine years old, the summer of 1978, and Marcy was my world. The shadowy bench-lined inner pathways that connected the 27 six-story buildings of Marcy houses were like tunnels we kids burrowed through. Housing projects can seem like labyrinths to outsiders and as complicated and intimidating as a Moroccan bazaar, but we knew our way around. Marcy sat on the top of the G-train, and then you go on and you talk about this, this cipher, this, this moment where this... this um, 
young man, young boy, I don't know how old he was, is, I mean, rapping and is, is uh, um, rhyming. And this is what you write, and I find it quite amazing. His name was Slate, and he was a kid I used to see around the neighborhood, an older kid who barely made an impression. In the circle, though, he was transformed like the church ladies touched by the spirit, and everyone was mesmerized. He was rhyming, throwing out couplets after couplet, like he was in a trance for a crazy long time, 30 minutes straight, off the top of his head, never losing the beat, riding the handcuffs. He rhymed about nothing, the sidewalk, the benches, or He'd go in, in on the kids who were standing around listening to him call out someone's leaning sneakers or dirty Lee jeans, and on and on it goes. Um, so that was, in, in, in a way, um, an epiphany for you. That was the first moment where you, you discovered, and you described a bit later, the importance and power of words. And you say in the next few pages, you talk about going and reading the dictionary and reading the dictionary to learn new words. And here we are in the library, and I think it's important that um, we're talking about the words that words really saved you in some way. Absolutely. Absolutely. The power of words and how mesmerized, um, because you got to figure that was pretty much the first time someone was speaking our language. The, the, the records we were listening to, were, you know, Prince and Michael Jackson and Temptations and, you know, I mean, Curtis Mayfield, and, yeah. you know, yeah. you know, we enjoyed those records, you know, but we didn't, they wasn't telling our story firsthand. You know, now this was a language, this conversation right. that was being had with these words, it made language new. It took words that we knew every day, ordinary words, and gave them heightened meaning, different meaning, and we can tell our story in a way that had never been told before. I mean, rap is three decades old. It's fairly new as a genre of music. So it was like the first time hearing that, and I was just, I was just mesmerized from that point on. No, actually, um, the galley that you sent me had on the cover Myrtle Avenue, Marcia Avenue, but also Reverend Dr. Gardner C. Taylor Boulevard. And that hit me so hard because Gardner C. Taylor is somebody I go see once. He was 92 years old. He's the greatest living Christian preacher of any color still alive. He, he was pastor of Concord Baptist Church for over 40-some years. And talking about the power of words, you got Gardner C. Taylor Boulevard. Here come. Sean, Corey, Carter, Jay-Z, and so forth. Jehovah and all the other things you, you work out with. It. Uh, and uh, <laughs> all those things you work out with, right? And, and, and both highlighting the power of words, but keeping in mind, again, that, you know, now August Wilson used to say black people authorize reality by means of performance. Because what performance does for black people of voices, lifting every voice, that's the anthem of black people, lift every voice. Because when you lift your voice, you can define your reality in the face of what other people are telling you is their reality imposed upon you. So you say, no, I'm going to sing my song. I'm going to find my voice. I'm going to be myself, my, be an original, rather than a copy in that sense. And so you got Gardner Taylor, older generation, Younger generation, Jay-Z, right there on that corner, accenting the power of words. And yet we say to ourselves, how do we keep this tradition alive and how do we pass it on to the younger 
generation. I know Brother Lupe Fiasco was here somewhere. Where's Brother Lupe? There he is. There he is. There he is. Brother Lupe, good to see you. Good to see you, though, brother. We, we were just talking together in the thing. Of, of, of a younger generation, you've been very important in terms of Kanye and the other folk. But how do you see yourself in this continuum of ensuring that the power of words remains at a quality, but also connecting it to the freedom fighting that we were talking about? Yeah, by just by protecting the, the, the integrity of it, you know, first of all, and by pushing it, uh, expanding it. And, and, and for me, you know, rap is entertainment at some point. But, you know, it's entertainment. But, you know, we base, it's, you know, it's based on our realities and we could take it anywhere we want, fantasy. But at some point it has to be some sort of truth, some sort of integrity, some sort of pride to making music. That's what I love about Lupe. When I, I met Lupe, I'm going to say, maybe 10 years ago, I mean, uh, and I thought he was an extraordinary writer from there. I was an executive, produced his first album. So my, 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 my role that I play in that is to expand it as far as I can, you know, you know, make it, uh, expand the genre of words and, you know, the maturity and the subject matter, the things we talk about and try to stay closer to those truths and try to, um, you know, explain it as poetry. It should be taken seriously because it is poetry. You know, some of the things that said are just mind boggling. Like you, if you sit down and really listen to some of the things that this young man has said, it's like, you you, you can't believe it. You know, and um, you got a wonderful it, reference to his song at Moment of Clarity in the footnotes about yeah. the, Remember the great song you yeah, talked yeah, about? Yeah, yeah. Was it Dumb It? Dumb It Down, dumb, yeah. Dumb, I was dumb. explaining how hard it is to dumb it down. <laughs> 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 it's very difficult. But yeah, just to just to uh, show it in a, in, in, in a positive light as a you know ambassador for it and to push the genre for it. And, you know, and to encourage new artists to not be afraid to be themselves, to, to not be afraid to hear their voice, not not just to uh, uh, imitate something that's popular or something that's, you know, on the radio or something that's that's working, you know, a formula that's working, but not, not be afraid to use their own voice. Because, you know, if there's variety, Absolutely. if there's variety in the music, then, you know. But given the... Recording industry, the video industry, the radio industry, which tends to not homogenize, flatten things out, give us this little bubblegum music that's thin and shallow and hollow. Do you see any tendencies that cut up against that and might begin to generate a new kind of, not a golden era, certainly a better era than Yeah, the it's called the internet. <laughs> yeah, the internet was a way of the music business purging itself. It's too many artists. You know, one year we released 57 artists on one label. There's not 57 great artists in the world. <laughs> Let alone one year. No, I'm sorry, one label. One label. That's right. Yeah, so it was a way of purging itself. The consumption of music is at an all-time high. People are still consuming music. But differently. They get it from different sources. Different you have, sources. You, have, you yeah. have some a passage about Napster, and I think that's yeah, very so interesting. That, that was a way to, because in the beginning, you know, musicians performed because they love it. They wasn't, they, we weren't high, high paid um, yeah, businessmen. Right. We just, you know, played on the corner for pennies and nickels, and then it became profitable, and then it became, you know, exploited. 
Um, so I think the internet is a way to bring it back, you know, just just a touch, you know, bring it back to that core, and and, and uh, not to have a self plug. But that's what we. That's why I, I left outside of the system of the music business to have the freedom to to build artists and take two years and. You know, people don't even believe in artist development anymore. It's very difficult. You put a single out there, and if it doesn't work, you just move on. And you, mm-hmm. you know, it takes time for people to, to, to find themselves and find their voice and know what they want to talk about. You know, fortunately for me, my first album came out, I was 26. I was maturing that way that I knew who I was. I knew what I wanted to say. I had a, a, a wealth of life experiences that I could draw upon and still draw upon to this day. And that shows you a career, a career built on, you know, real life experiences, real emotions that I can draw on at any given time. You know, a lot of times it's, you know, an artist is not ready to be an artist. You have a great record. That's one. Yeah, yeah. It, it, re- it reminds me of what Charlie, you can make Charlie, Charlie Mingus said, you have to improvise, but you have to improvise on something. Right. And so yeah. you, 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 need, you need a life. But, you know, yeah, you were, yeah, you were yeah. talking about tra- tradition and transmission. Mm. Sometimes tradition and transmission happens in the oddest way. As I was confiding to you earlier on, when I grew up, I was listening to Louis Armstrong, as we heard, and the magic flute. But now I live in Brooklyn, in Fort Greene, and I have uh, uh, two young boys. And I, was, I took my older young boy, who's just about to turn nine, to visit his grandparents who were not so well in Europe. And my father was saying to me, what's rap? (laughs) He's 92, left Vienna, spent the war years in Haiti, knows that there's rap, but doesn't really know what it is. And I said, I'll ask Sam. And so Sam, and I brought this here, wrote a letter to his grandfather Ah. from the hotel. He was staying with me, but my father's hard of hearing, um, which is why I've developed a fairly boisterous voice, so that he would really hear me. (laughs) And so Sam wrote a letter to my father, and I'll read just a little small part of it. This is how tradition also happened. Rap for grand-père and grand-mère, November 2nd, 2010. Rap is a form of singing. In rap, you can say just about anything you want. You have to be very, a very talented singer and be able to say lou- lots of sentences in one breath. Rap doesn't necessarily need to be fast. Rap expresses the energy of the street. Some rappers can come out of nowhere and be very talented and, create one pati- and, and creative. One particular rapper I like is called Jay-Z. He comes from a very poor, he was very poor growing up in Brooklyn, and one day he heard a boy, because I've read the book to him, of nine years old, rapping, and he thought, I can do that. And from then on, he carried a notebook wherever he went and wrote raps, and now he's very famous. But he really doesn't care about fame, he cares about the music. So you see that when you practice, you can make your dreams come true. Wow. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. That's, beautiful. Yeah. That's powerful. Bro. And um, yeah. I can't say, my son is sitting there, I can't say that... Um, that um, you have a poet. Yeah. I can't say that, uh, that my, my father completely got it. He began to understand, and he began to understand the interest 
Do you still have that notebook? No, no, it's been lost. I wish. Sadly. You, you carried that notebook around everywhere, and, and you describe in the book, and I think it's a wonderful description, how the notebook mm. was covered. Every inch was covered. It and was sort of like this page here, so it didn't have lines. Right. It, it was like a makeshift. You know, my mom made it with these little binders, and it was like holes, and it was like, you know, it wasn't very traditional notebook in the sense of just a bunch of pages. So there was, you know, sometimes... It, the whole story would be crooked like this. So it, the whole page, entire pages were just filled. I wrote on the side, wrote anywhere. And, I, uh, and you describe in, in, in those pages that you could find yourself literally in the middle of the street and uh, have to stop and quickly write down whatever it is what, that was going through your head. And this still happens to you now. Yeah, except I don't have the notebook, so it's very... You know, the further away I got from that notebook, you know, those ideas, well, it, with anything, you, you know, it's like an exercise. If mm. you're writing that, I mean, you know, almost obsessively, I would write and write. If you write those that many hours and you're away from that thing and you're just outside, your mind still, you know, hears these hear words. These words still come to you. You know, whether you're sitting at the table or not, your, your location moves, you're, you're the same person, your body is the same. So these words would come to me, and I had to retain them until I got back to the notebook to dump them. So with any exercise while doing that so many times, I was able to retain so much material. I would have four or five songs that I hadn't written down just in my mind. I'm curious now, in writing this book and in, in reviewing with such care and uh, w with such patience, your own lyrics and commenting upon them with, with such precision, have there been revelations for you? Um, Did you discover things in the songs that you didn't know were there? No, not really. I'm, I'm pretty much, you know, in touch with, with, well, I try to be in touch with the emotions of what I went through and, you know, everything that's, that's you know, coming out in these words. I live them all the time. So I pretty much uh, know everything that's in there. Some things, when you read on paper, are more profound than others. You know, Big Pimpin' is not profound at all. <laughs> it's very fun. <laughs> it's, a, it's a great time. You know, you try to try it around the house. It's amazing. <laughs> but, you know, you take a song. Some songs are uh, less complicated. You know, like you take a song like Run This Town. You know, I just think it's a hit record. I didn't think it had any deep meaning. But if you look at the words, feel it coming everywhere, the screams from everywhere, uh, I'm addicted to the thrill, it's this dangerous love affair. You know, when you look at those words, you know, it, it takes on a uh, more profound meaning than, you know, what it really was. I mean, one so it works both ways, is pretty much it. One of the things that comes through in the book is your uh, willingness to be vulnerable. Now, that's also true in some of the lyrics, I think, of, uh, of, of later albums, where it's clear that like my generation, you know, we, we said ain't too proud to beg. That's the temptation. And they harmonizing together on the mic. You make the profound point. Hip-hop, you don't have collective harmonizing on the mic together. So you miss the dramatic, stylistic main ingredients, the whispers, all of those folks that mean so much to me. Because in harmonizing together, they don't have to be as what would be the right word? Um, 
big and bad. Yeah, yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? Right. And there's something about vulnerability. Maybe I'm just getting older, though, brother, but there's something about vulnerability well, that is closer to one's humanity. Absolutely. And therefore, it allows one to kind of reflect on not just radical inadequacies, but also radical yearnings that can result only when one is vulnerable, opens oneself in that sense. And I think that's part of the critique of the old school, the new school. Where's the vulnerability? Because usually if people are not vulnerable, then they're hiding certain insecurity in order to be big and bad. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, well, my first album, the last song on there is a song called Regrets. Yes, and it was yes, a, when I was yes. young, you used to hold me, told me I was the best. You know, this is a very vulnerable moment. But again, I was 26. So for the most part, when people, when, when uh, artists, you know, get signed at 18, 17 years old, they haven't matured to that level. You, you know, as a kid, you're indestructible. You know, you feel you're indestructible. You, and again, you don't want to deal with those sort of emotions. It's not a comfortable place to say that, you know, you you're scared. You know, it's and it's and it's not a very um none of us wanna do that. Yeah. We wanna acknowledge but, it, but we know it's real. At, especially at eighteen. But you 18. know you know, so it's just a level of maturity. And that's really the for rap for so long it was the it was the hot spot. That was the hot you know, they say rap is for kids or rap is for the younger generation. It's really not, you know, it's it's for everybody as we as we're starting to see, you know, as it grow. Um but that was the white hot spot for rap. So people was, even when you got older, you're 30 years old, you're still trying to record like you're 18 years old. Mm -hmm. So that when you're doing that, you're missing that element of vulnerability and of honesty and maturity and these, you know. But do you feel the pressure of the market to not want to deal with those more mature sensibilities and feelings because the market is so eager for the more simplified, flattened out? Yeah, but I think those, again, are, are short remedies. You yeah, know, uh, the intelligent remedy. person, you know, a, a Lupe Fiasco will have a much longer career. You know, those vulnerable moments don't sell 4 million copies typically. But, but then he can have the mark, it, he can have the industry coming at him then, because then, he's mature so early. And then know? for 10 years, he can uh, slowly build to... Build absolutely. No, I, I hear you. I hear you. Can I just ask one of the questions? Because there's of a course. moment in, uh, that hit me so hard. That was, uh, it was in a footnote, but I was thinking about your grandfather being a pastor in the Church of God in Christ and the role of religion in your life. And you had said that the death of Biggie just radically, not shattered, but unsettled your sense of justice in the world and even a just God, a kind of theodicy, as it were. And I'm wondering... Where you are on that issue? I think all people, I mean, I think we all as human beings, you know, we're in search of what's, no one can be sure. We all, we're in search with, of what's after um, and what's, what affects uh, religion play in our lives. You know, I mean, I believe in God and I believe in um, things happening for a reason. And then when certain things happen in life, it kind of shakes your foundation of what you right. believe. That's right like a baby being killed or you know it's like what could have possibly what possibly could have innocent child have done to the world to affect it in such a manner that it has to be taken away from here there's no real justification for that um so you, you start to question 
you know, everything you've told. And I don't think that's, uh, uh, you know, against religion or blasphemous or anything. I think you have to question everything about life. Um, you know, and that, cause that's the only way we're going to understand it for deeper understanding. We have to ask the question and, you know, and you still hold on to religious faith though. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I believe in God and I believe that, you know, for me, you know, different religions, whether it's, you know, a Muslim faith or Christianity, Baptist, everything, we're all, we all praying to the same God. It, it pretty much saying the same thing in every book. But do you think the Ku Klux Klan is praying to the same God that you and I praying to? Uh, Miscommunication taking place? Yeah, I think, I think at its core, yes. Mm. I think there's a, a certain ignorance um, that's, mm. you know, in, in uh, people in organizations such as the Ku Klux Klan and, you know, hatred in their heart. But I think they're praying to the same God. They're praying to the creator. You know, this this doesn't work like this without a creator. You, your body is such a perfect thing. You cut, you scab. I mean, you, you, I don't know if that can be created by science. Um, I'm just not a believer in that. And, and, but I think that, um, you know, as far as religion, you know, I take things that ring true to me. I, I don't, I, don't, I guess I don't have a, a denomination. I guess I used to, is that how you say it? Uh, you know, I, you know, I've I, I read things in the Muslim faith that was uh, rang true to me. I've read things in, you know, different religions. Uh, I just believe in God. Sorry. <laughs> don't no, apologize. No, I appreciate that. I caught you in the middle of a thought. No, those, those, are, those are deep thoughts. And the song you're referring to is a song called Lucifer. Lucifer. And it was dealing with the devils of That's right. or within, you know, these sorts of feelings. Someone get killed and you have this feeling like, man, you know, they can't be a God. I love them too much. Why would a just God take them away for no reason. Biggie, who was the most charismatic person, he wasn't a troublemaker at all. He was just a funny, charismatic guy. And and for him to die so senselessly in L.A., I spoke to him that night, and he was so happy to be in L.A., you know, after the whole East Coast, West Coast thing. He felt like he finally um, was back in L.A., and everything was finally where it was supposed to be. He loved being in L.A., and he, he just had this sense of everything is great. And we see this happen in movies, like when it, when everything is just fine. And, you know, we hung up the phone, and then one hour later, he's no longer wow. with us. You know, it's just... March, March the 9th. I, I want to... I have so many questions. One of them has to do with... Uh, Biggie was gone, but is he still working through it? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. That's very important. Very important. Fame and expectation. Um, y- your book brings again and again this whole notion of what is expected of you and also what it means to become famous. And I'm reminded, each time I read the word fame, I'm reminded of a, of an, a German poet who once said that fame is but the collection of misunderstandings that gather around a new name. And here you are, you know, you, you're, you become world famous, globally famous, expected to, to do so many things and I'm, I'm wondering if this feels to you sometimes like a burden. Um, yeah, but more a challenge than a burden. The challenge of, you know, I said something to Kanye in his Power Remix. I asked him, do you have the power to get out from up under you? 
because every artist, you know, you compare it to your first album, your first work, or your greatest work, or your greatest album, and everyone wants you to make that album 11 times, and it's just impossible. You have to move forward. You have to move forward in a way that you, you do so with integrity and greatness, and you, you move away from that. And um, for me, it's more so a challenge, you know, and it's acknowledging that challenge and acknowledging, you know, what's out there is what, what I tend to do. And they want you to make the same album again and again, a recognizable st uh, style, uh, nearly a stereotypical style. I've told this story before from the stage, but I, I just have to tell it once more. A friend of mine uh, who knew Miles Davis fairly well um, was going to a concert of Miles Davis, and he ran into Miles Davis, and Miles Davis said, is there anything I can do for you, Michael? And he said, yes, I have a friend who's in town. I need a second ticket. He said, that's fine. He said, anything else I can do for you? He said, yes, my friend loves my funny Valentine. And Miles Davis said to my friend, tell your friend to buy the record. <laughs> that sounds like on to the next one. Right. <laughs> and I'm, I'm particular. No, I made a record called on no, to the right, next right, one. Right. <laughs> the um, single called on to the next <laughs> I kind of thought back to you said sometimes I'm loose. <laughs> I, I, mean told you, I told you you I would lose me from time to time. Yeah. It just dawned on me yeah. that the phrase is just like a phrase as well as an album. So this, I mean, the, the, song, the song that I made is called On to the Next One. In the song, I said, uh, um, what did I say? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you want my old shit? Buy my old album. Yeah. Where were you 30 seconds ago? <laughs> <laughs> Did you just get here? <laughs> I love Thank the, you. I love the story in, in, your, in your book about uh, the hard knock life and Annie. Um, and how I, 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 was mis I misspoke earlier on speaking about how you, you uh, recorded your mother without her knowing, but for Annie, you played a nice trick. I read that to my son yesterday, and he said, a, a really faint. did... A, yeah. A true ma magician has to learn the value of a faint, right? That's what they yeah, say. that's one way of putting it. Yeah. Um, so how did you get to... I lied. Yeah. <laughs> how did you get to... And I'm, I'm worried also, or I'm, I'm well, wondering if you're worried when the executives read uh, no, it was for good. It was all for greater good, and he loves it. Uh, uh, um, you know, uh, Charles, I uh, can't, um, can't pronounce his last name. Yeah. He loves the song, and he loved the, the, the uh, translation of the song, and he actually spoke about it and spoke about how he wanted to make that song. We talk about uh, the Little Orphan Annie theme song, how he wanted to make that song gritty, and he read the liner notes on Hard Knock Life and how I took this song, you know, about an orphan, a red-headed orphan from somewhere, uh, and related it to, a, a, you know, our culture because, you know, at the at the foundation of that song is the, the feeling of abandonment and a feeling of not being recognized by the society. Instead of treated, we get tricks. Instead of kisses, we get kicks. And I took something so beautiful, these beautiful notes and these chords, and I just told this real gritty story on top of it. And, you know, when you first hear that without the proper... Um, you know, without really, without the proper context, I'm almost tired of saying that word, but it's just <laughs> true. Without the proper context, you know, he dismissed it immediately at first. And then I wrote him a letter of how, you know, 
and he affected my life. But I saw it on TV. I didn't go to the play. You know, in the note, I told him that we had an essay in school and nobody's ever going to believe me anymore after this. But I told him we... <laughs> We had an essay at school, and I'd won the essay, and we went to see uh, Annie on Broadway and how it affected my life. The truth is... It did affect your life. It did affect my life. The last part was true. The last part was true. It did affect my life. But the truth is, my sister, her name is Andrea, but we call her Annie. So when this, this show, Annie, came on TV, I was immediately drawn to it. And I'm like, what is this about? And I watch the movie, and I'm like, wow, this is how we feel this is about this is about us this is how we feel and then so years later when i was on tour and uh kid capri had played this instrumental that uh dj um mark 45 king had made it stopped me in my tracks i was actually walking off stage after performing and he played this song you know like as an intermission for the before the next act went on and i heard these this sound and with these drums and i said wait and i told everybody around me i was like wait a minute and you know, I went around to the DJ booth, and I was like, what is that? And he told me that uh, Mark had made, and Mark is notoriously hard to find. And uh, we found him in Maryland somewhere, and I recorded the record, and, you know, it was all for the greater good. And interestingly enough, in the book, there's a line that is a direct quotation. It's the best of times and the worst of times. Mm-hmm. And so you're, you're, you're consciously, I think, quoting Dickens yeah. you're, you're, and you're quoting someone who is, who is writing in a very different context but writing about the problem whether it is uh, the problem of orphanages or the problem of doom and gloom and it's a story that can touch you and can touch anybody mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. again we all again we all are, we're all built of all these emotions after you take away all the titles and you know the best of time and the worst of time can relate to a great uh, sonnet to you know to a great conversation had on the corner and uh, you know Nostrin and Marcy mm-hmm. and I'm just reminded to the last line of In Defense of Poetry by, by Shelley when he said poets are the unacknowledged legislators of the world as a poet what does Jay-Z's world look like what would it look like and how would it hit up against the world in which we find ourselves. It would be uh, an honest portrayal of what the world is today. It's what it is today. It's filled with complex human beings that are uh, in search of something, in search of something greater, in search of a greater purpose. What is my purpose? What, why am I here? What, you know, what is the, the vibration I'm going to leave, you know, for future generations? And, you know, uh, how am I going to uh, affect the world in such a way that when I'm gone, it's a better place? You know, it's pretty much those are the truths of without all the complication of politics and lies and, you know, uh, trying to be something you're not. And, you know, all these other um, things that we cover, we, we put out there to cover our insecurities or to cover our deceit, bad deceit, not like the anti-deceit. And, you, you know, it would look like what the world is. It's full of complex human beings. I find human beings extraordinary. I love to have the conversation. You know, I love to find that thing, that thing that we have in common that we can spend hours speaking on. You know, those sort of new experiences for me, like when you, you took me up to Princeton. I mean, it was just a new, beautiful world to me, you know. Um, this conversation tonight, 
you know, your son's understanding of of rap music. You know, I think rap is powerful in that way. And and what is powerful to me here is that it's an inversion. I'm I'm learning from him. And a child Uh, shall lead. (laughs) From a children's lips. (laughs) I'd like to play uh, two number five, if we could. One day, I'm gonna understand. from Princeton, you know, Lauren Hill. Uh, um, when, when, I was li- when I put this on, you said, have you heard this album? And I said, no, I mean, I, I now have heard it because classic, of you. Classic, um, classic, classic. What in, it, it, what in, in, in this song in particular uh, yeah, struck you so powerfully? That words, how words can be uh, uh, so powerful, right? You listen to this song and then you, you really get a deep understanding of who she was at the time. I, I, you know, I've been fortunate enough to meet Zion. And as soon as I m- met him, the only first thing I thought about was this song. I loved this song years before, you know, he existed, before he came into this world. And, um, you know, that's, you know, it's a female uh, recording artist and she's pregnant at the time and people are telling so her. Hmm? People are saying, don't follow uh, your your heart but follow your head right you know they, they're telling her to abort her child and she didn't she chose to have a, her child in the music business you know and she st- went on to have you know one of the most successful um you know albums ever and it just for me it reminded me how fortunate we were you know to um when we went to every label, they just told us no to have our own label because we had a sort of creative control that other people didn't have, you know, because it's not just it's not enough to just have talent. You have to have control of your career as well, because this is one album. You know, we would love to have had 10 albums for, from out from her. But this is pretty much you can see that a problem right here was such a huge problem that w- wasn't going to go away. 
you know, if someone is, 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 um, I don't know, if arrogant, maybe bold, it's so bold, if someone is bold enough to tell you to, um, to abort your child so you can sell records, then they're going to tell you all kinds of things. And we see that come to fruition with her career. Um, it just meant so much for me. It's like one of those moments where music can be so powerful. It was another moment that I've had. I've had many, but another moment that I had, and it's in the book, is with Scarface, who's a rapper yeah. from uh, from uh, Houston, Texas. And we were doing a song called Can't Be Life. And, um, you know, we're sitting in the front room, and we're just, you know, we're talking before we're going to record. And his phone rings, and he's like, nah, man. And you can see something is happening on the other line. I don't know what it is. And he's saying, no. And then he gets on the phone again, and he calls his uh, he calls his wife, and he asks her, "Man, how's little Brad? How's he doing?" He went to check on his his children. Then he get up, got off the phone, and he told me that one of his friends' kid was in a house fire and had passed away. And we were doing a song that night, and I'm like, "Ah, oh, man, I'm just so sorry to hear that." And, and I tell him, "Man, we can we we do this, you know, another time." And he he called me Jig. He was like, "Nah, Jig." No, man, I'm uh, I'm good, man. I got you. I'm going to do it now. And he sat in the corner, and he rocked sort of like that. And he <laughs> wrote this song, and he wrote this song about the whole experience. And on the song, it's like, as I walk into the studio to do this with Jig, I get a phone call from one of my knees. He said, my homeboy Reese, he just lost one of his kids. And when I heard that, it just, and you know, like this powerful oh, thing that he took that experience, this this, you know, powerful and this, this very sad experience. And he turned it into this most, this, this powerful art that was, it almost had me embarrassed about my verse. It was that powerful, you know, because he ends the verse by saying, I could have talked about my own life in this song, but heaven knows I wouldn't have been wrong. That wouldn't have been life. That wouldn't have been love. And the song is called Can't Be Right. And I'm just in like, yeah. man. Yeah. That's, that's powerful. But it raises an issue of the role of of love and compassion in certain kinds of art. And that's a little different than just the quest for truth, though. That you, you, can, you can find your voice and reflect about conditions and so forth. But love is a leap of faith. And that leap of faith requires that vulnerability again and the intimacy. And then being willing to share that with the world. Right. And I wonder, I mean, I think of your song, Ain't No Love in the City, with Bobby Bland. Because right. I love how you bring the blues artists in, too, you see. That's very yeah, important. Absolutely. But Bobby Bland singing. But, but you were echoing Roberta Flack and Donna Hathaway in Where Is the Love, 1972. Right. Where is the love? Now, is the legacy of love, especially the legacy of black love, alive in a serious way for you or is it declining and waning because I look at all the player hating coming at you, the jealousy, the envy all of those are drum beats in your music as well from the very beginning I mean part of it is because you're talking bad so they're going to come at you you know but I mean which, 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 which you do execute you execute, I'm you do bad, execute I'm a bad man, you're a bad man now ain't no doubt about that, <laughs> oh, you're a bad man ain't no doubt about that like Muhammad Ali and other sure. people. Oh, yes, indeed. Richard Pratt. And that conversation, yeah, my, and that's why Muhammad Ali is one of my heroes. Because for me, when he was saying, I'm pretty, he was saying that to all of us. He made all of us feel like we were pretty. I'm pretty. I'm a bad man. I'm pretty. And you got to figure at the time this was. It was a time when we were considered ugly. 
You know, so he wasn't just saying that as a boast to walk inside the ring. He was saying that as a boast to all of us. I'm pretty, you're pretty, he's pretty. He, you, you know what I'm saying? And that's what I felt. Um, that's what I got from Muhammad Ali. And uh, to answer your question, yeah, a lot of a lot of shortcuts um, are being taken um, because of the lack of proper artist development, I believe, or the, the lack of proper maturing, you know, period. Um, you need a certain level of maturation to experience these love and have these sort of feelings and, you know, the proper role models as well. Uh, I think the generation that we went through was so emotionally scarring to us, right? Think Absolutely. about the, 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 the time we grew up in was like the crack epidemic. Absolutely. The whole relationship between a, a, it takes a, a, a village to raise a child had split. It, was, it no longer existed. The people that were supposed to care for us were now running around uh, the neighborhood, you know, and crack is like a, it's not a, it's not a prideful drug. You know, you've seen people in the hallways and no s sense of self-worth. And, you know, now the child was in charge. The child didn't even have respect for its elders because he was in the, uh, the, the position of authority, you, you know. And, and that thing is psychological. That's not going to go away. And it is, you know, so that sort of feeling and love, love for yourself and love for, you know, your elders and respect for people were, were gone. It was gone for... Well, you talked about that. Yeah. 13, you talk about that moment with Biggie. It's, it's, it's about Look something at our changed. Parents. Look at our parents. They even scared they, of us. They effing, yeah. yeah, they, even, yeah, they, yeah. they effing scared of us. Yeah. And that is a different moment because I, I wasn't scared were, of my parents. Well, you, you, talk, <laughs> you talk very movingly uh, about uh, both parents. Your, your mother who... Right. Who, who gave you? Yeah, not at all. Not at all. <laughs> my parents were not scared me at all. Your, Your parents you were not at all. Not at no, all. No. And that was a good thing. I didn't want dad scared exactly. of me. Exactly. Yeah. Now dad gave me enough room to resist him because he loved me enough for me to find my own voice. But if I had grown up where my father and my mother were afraid of me. Which is your generation. But, but, yeah. your, mother w but your mother wasn't yeah. afraid of you. Your mother no, wasn't no. afraid of you. Your no. mother understood that things were happening in your life that weren't all good. Yeah. She was very strong. And she gave you, you say it many times, she gave you latitude, she gave you room, she gave you a boombox. Yeah, part of raising children is knowing your child. You have to know who you have to be more strict on and, and you, who you can give, you know, a longer leash. And she, and she allowed me to, like he said, you know, she allowed me to find my voice and she allowed me certain... Uh, uh, you know, room that I didn't really didn't deserve at such a young age, but I guess she knew something that I didn't at the you, time. One, before we speak a tiny bit about your father, you talk in the book, a sentence which comes back again and again is getting away with it. Um, this, you talk about both looking in the mirror, this comes, this image of looking in the mirror and who you see something you're quite interested in, and also the fact that you, you, you've gotten away with things. Yeah, because, uh, you know, again, I was seeing such destruction on a regular basis that didn't make the newspaper, yeah. you know, wasn't yeah. reported. All yeah. these things were happening, you know, every day. So every day that I was alive, I was getting away with it in some sort of way. Every time that I, you know, I tempted fate, I was getting away with it, you know, because... 
This was a natural occurrence. You know, our friends, right next, you would be with someone one week, and, you know, they were just here. You was all good just a week ago. You know, all these things, uh, you know, were taking place. Your mother was instrumental um, in getting you together with your father. Um, you, were, you were worried um, that your father actually wouldn't show up. And in fact, he didn't show up the first time. And she pursued and said, you have to meet him a second time. Your father left when I think you were like 11 or 12. Like 11, 12. 11 or 12. And you always say 11 or 12, which itself, the incertitude is yeah. interesting that you're not quite sure. But he left and he didn't come back. And you never really knew what it was that made him go away, but discovered in your conversation, precisely in a conversation, you discovered, and you discovered something that I find most amazing, that you were able to forgive him. Tell, tell us what, what you discovered a, and who he was. As a gift, I would, I would love for our generation and all the people that grew up without their parents, whether you knew them early on or not, is to have that conversation so you could let that sort of anger go. Because that's the sort of anger that keeps you from love, yeah, right? It, yeah, keep, it, yeah, it makes you put yeah. up walls and, you know, let that's people right. um, get close to you because you don't ever want to feel that feeling of abandonment or that feeling of hurt again. So you don't let certain people close to you, you know. So if I could give anyone a gift, I would give them that, you know, the moment when I was able to have the conversation and let it go and, you know, surprisingly forgive him uh, you know, once again, you discovered something in context. You discovered why your father left. Right. And, you, know, you know, growing up, I just thought he decided one day that he was tired of everything and walked out. But I didn't know the emotional circumstances by, behind what happened. So what happened when I was around 11 was um, his younger brother, uh, his name was Ray, had got stabbed up in Sumner Project, which is about 15 minutes away from where we lived. And he died. And my father would go out at nights and look for the guy who killed him. And my mother would say, man, you have a family here. How could you go out and risk, you know, these sort of, you know, risk your family? Your family is here. And he's like, no, that's my brother. So that dynamic of my blood br brother versus my family and, you know, we should have been one thing, but it was a it was like a, a pull to him, and then he really got depressed and started drinking and doing drugs and different that, and he just wasn't the same person who had been there for the first ten years of my life, who had married my mom in a time when it wasn't popular, you know, um, and who was raising, you know, he, you know, the four of us, you know, as a man, you know, something happened to him. So without that context, just him leaving, I had this anger, you know, but when I slowly got to know why, I can understand a bit of what happened to him. He was sick. He wasn't who he used to be. He had changed as a person. He had been scarred, and he built up this, this, um, this wall that he couldn't get over. And then, you know, the drugs, you know, made him go further away from his true self. You know, you know, one of the sublime moments in the text is when your father used to bring you here to Times Square. Yeah, yeah. And you all would walk around Times Square and he would be yeah, pointing Brian out was, all, Brian was with me too, yeah. all me, the details and, Brian, and so yeah. forth. And then you end that paragraph and you say, actually, Dad taught me to be an artist because yeah. you have to be very concise, precise, meticulous about the details, what you're seeing, the perception, being able to see 
things and see through things at the same time. But then on the other hand, there's a haunting line that again hit me hard, though, brother, when you said that um, that at your precious father's funeral, you were more intrigued than devastated. And yeah, you were not crying at that, your father. That was, that, that, yeah. was, that was, I mean, it's honest again. You just so, yeah. you keep it real, the brother. Yeah. I love that about you. But that hit me hard, though, man, because. Hard to write good, that. Hard good, to man. write that. Oh, Lord, yeah. I gave my father the eulogy. Now, that's the most difficult thing I will ever do. Everything else downhill after that, you know what I mean? Right, right. But we had a different kind of relationship. That's right. And so I look at you, I said, my brother, how did you get the strength without that kind of fatherly love after 11 or 12? Because you did have it before, mm-hmm. and it's still in you now. But where you got that strength to, to still do what you do. Without the, without the without, uh, a f- yeah. role model of a father. I mean, without it is, a role model. Yeah. Role model too abstract. Okay. <laughs> Somebody who just loves you in the flesh, in the funk, in the concreticity of who you are. That ain't no role model. That's no, the concreticity. That's, that's, that's the real thing. No, I, yeah. You know what I mean? That's, that's the real thing. That's right. You see what I'm that's talking right. about? Yeah. No, I'm, I, I'm wasn't trying to correct No, I, no, no, I, I, I understand. And I, I think the word concreticity is great. Yeah, keep it yeah. Yes, that down on the Keep ground. it down. <laughs> keep it real. Yeah, you now, you, you wanted us to, to listen to this track number six, if we could do that. Okay, I really love it. You motherfuckers <laughs> think you big time? Fucking with Jay-Z, you gonna die big time. Here come the pain. Jigger, bigger, nigga, how you figure? Yeah, 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 and yo. Uh-huh. The number one question is can the feds get us? Uh-huh. I got vendettas and dice games against uh-huh. ass betters and niggas who pump wheels and drive jettas. Take that with you. Hit ya, back splits up. Fuck fist fights and lane scuffles. Uh-huh. Pillowcase to your face, make the shell muffle. Shoot your daughter in the calf muscle. Uh-huh. Fuck a tussle, nickel plated. Sprinkle coke on the floor, make it drug related. Most haters uh-huh. get faded. Uh-huh. While y'all pump really, uh-huh. I run up and stunt silly. Uh-huh. Scared so you sent your little mans to come kill me. Uh-huh. But on the contrary, I packs the Mac Mini, squeezed off on him. Left the paramedics breathing soft on him. What's your name? Who shot you? My ties like Sinatra. Peruvians tried to do me in. I ain't paid them yet. Trying to push 700s, they ain't made them yet. Rolex and bracelets, soft bit. Cornell. That's a tradition alive. That's a tradition alive. That's right. You know what I'm talking about? No, we got to keep the tradition alive in all the different voices. Because, see, the truth of the matter is that. America is not going to make it without the black voices, musically, politically, ideologically, whatever. Without Frederick Douglass, Martin King, Ida B. Wells, Barnett, Ray Charles, Stevie Wonder, John Coltrane, Aretha Franklin, Ella Fitzgerald, we can go on and on. I ain't even talking about Sarah Vaughn yet. Or Louis, or Duke, or Count. And these are not just entertainers, just like this brother here. This brother is part of a tradition of struggle for freedom psychically, socially, politically, and artistically. But he's coming out of the underside of the American empire in the project. The richest empire in the history of the world. Look what he had to deal with every day of his life. That's a shame. That's a shame. And look at you now, but at the same time, his life is inseparable from the brothers in the graves and with the funerals we went to. So that's the tradition. He represents this tradition 
in his own way as a, as a human being with all of the visionary breakthroughs and artistic breakthroughs, but also some of the criticisms that we're talking about in regard to gender and other issues that we, we, that, that, that we know we have to wrestle with. And if America doesn't recognize that, it's just, you know, we're going to lose the best of it. I know you, you got a relation to Obama, and I, I like the sections on I mean, Obama. Yeah, we can talk about, about to bring it Brother Barack Obama, but, uh, because oh, yeah. Barack needs to understand what we're talking about. I mean, I'm, I'm, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you. I'm you got to get some backbone in him. Right here. It's going to be, you know. How did, it feel, how did it feel to you when, uh, when Obama, as it were, you know, quoted you? Uh, I thought that was incredibly, incredibly courageous of him. You know, for many yeah. times people have, um, you know, hidden right. or, or used rap as, you know, part of their political campaign, you know, as this, this music, this gangster music that people shouldn't be listening to. It's this, it's this uh, scourge on, the, on America where well, well, we wasn't making this music, it was still happening in these neighborhoods. A lot of what we were saying was happening in neighborhoods anyway. Okay. They, they almost used rap as a, a tool. Um, so I thought it took an, a great amount of courage for him to stand there and do that and or even admit that I, you know, he had rap on his iPod. It was like a new generation uh, you know, of president. Meeting him for you must have been quite extraordinary. Thinking where, where you came from, and now you were, you were having, some time with, your president. Yeah, it was like an unbelievable uh, uh, feeling. Yeah, I didn't think that would ever happen. But I didn't think a black man would be president in America any, either. So you know, the two coupled together. That's true for most of us. Yeah. We didn't, we didn't recognize. We didn't think there'd be a black man as a president. In the White House. Black man as a president, the, the, the wife of a rapper singing for the black man's inauguration. It's that was quite, a, a Beyonce. Yeah, yeah, that was yeah. quite something. Now, um, that, that you, we, we spoke earlier about Oprah and, um, and her difficulty, generational difficulty mm. perhaps, with the N-word. Um, but with Oprah, it's not just generation. How many blues men and women have you seen on Oprah's show? Have you ever seen B.B. King on her show? Yeah. No, B.B. King ain't never been on Oprah's show. I just went B.B. a few weeks ago. He wanted to get on the show. He can't get on the show. And I don't know what, what y'all is hallucinating or something over here. B.B. hasn't been on the show. Now, he might be on some other. But, I mean, it's not just generational. Oprah's got her social constituency. And she's an entrepreneurial genius. She needs to be able to stay in business. I salute her business and so forth. But at the same time, it's not just generational. You see what I mean? It's a matter of the tradition itself. We got jazz musicians. What is interesting in the book, as it ends with with Oprah, is that you are having a conversation. You are having a conversation with Oprah and trying. Man, you gonna set that brother off? I'm trying to. No, but I mean, no, I don't mean to interrupt my brother. No, no, no. I don't mean to interrupt you either. Go ahead. No, no, no. You go ahead. No, you're making you're making a very important point, though. You make a very important point. I'm going to try. No, no, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Uh, this is what you write. You know, hip-hop has done so much more for race relations, even with its ignorance, which, by the way, we do take some responsibility for. But even without directly taking on race, we have changed things just by being who we are. It is difficult to teach racism in the home when your kid loves Jay-Z. It's hard to, to, to say that guy is beneath you who your kid idol, when your kid idolizes that guy. 
And I think that is incredibly powerful. Just rap in itself, you know, without saying, you know, we should all respect each other as human beings. You know, just the level of success and the penetration and the power in the words, you know, it, you know, because that's where racism is taught. It's taught in the home, you know, and uh, it's very difficult to do that. So I think rap has done more for, for racial relations than, um, you know. You know, and I must, I must say to you, um, as I'm discovering your work now, it's quite obvious, I think, uh, to the people here tonight that I'm no expert in rap. Um, but as I'm discovering your work and discovering this truly magnificent book, um, soul-searching, deeply honest, candid, highly poetic, in a tr I mean, we should, ha your archives should come to the New York Public Library at some point. It is an, ex <laughs> an, an you know, and I'll, I'll have a shout out here for the Brooklyn Public Library if they want it. Schomburg, which is part of the public library. That's right, that's right. Um, but, but truly, um, it, it, it seems to me, um, now I lost my thought. <laughs> yes, listening to, to your, your music over the last few weeks and having those CDs with that uh, little label that says, you know, sexually explicit or parental guidance. I decided that my parental guidance was in part to have my young boys listen to these words and to listen to them because perhaps if they listen to those words and understand the intent and understand that it's part of our vocabulary and understand that words are only as bad as the intentions, intentions with which you use them, they will learn a lesson much more, important than, much more important than if I censor them. So in some way, you've given me a, a great tool to, to teach them how to be more fully human. I, I applaud you. I applaud you. No, I applaud you. Again, you have to know your child to know that they can handle that, that level of profanity and that and you have to instill something in them to, to say that exact same thing you know words and intent those two things go together you know without, without intent words are just a bunch of uh, you know symbols you know strung together some sort of way well we'll, you know? we'll see how well they do um. <laughs> <laughs> well you'd be surprised uh, I'm sure they've heard a couple. I'm sorry to tell you this tonight. <laughs> I'm going to break this news to you. But they've heard every one of those words. They've heard it before. They've heard it before. I, I, I think for me, though, I think I'm. Um, I, think, I, mean, I don't want to snitch on the guys, but they may have said they, it. They may have said well, the, but the greatest poet in the English that we're speaking now is William Shakespeare himself. He retires at 47. That wonderful moment in As You Like It, when he said, all the world's a stage, and all the men and women, women merely players with their exits and entrances. And he's talking about what it means to be a player, a playmaker, sometimes a player hater, <laughs> a player helper. But all of us go through the stages from infant to oblivion. He's got seven of them in, in, that, in that speech, you recall. And, of course, for you, player and being a player is fundamental to your whole worldview. The question is, what kind of player are you going to be? 
and what kind of playmaking will you enact? You see, Martin Luther King was a playmaker, right? Because he made certain moves and tried to, in his stages of his life, have a certain kind of impact. He's, he was an artist oratorically, you're an artist musically and, and lyrically, but all of us have that challenge. And that is what, in the end, Jay-Z and Shakespeare have in common, the centrality of raising the question, what kind of playmaking will you make in your move from womb to tomb because you're going to be dead just like Shakespeare now. And you're not going to be alive that long. Will you leave a legacy? What kind of legacy will it be? Not just artistically, but will your life itself become a work of art in which your art is an element in your life as work of art? That's Shakespeare in the Tempest. That's his swan song. That's how he goes out. <laughs> That's how he goes out. It's like the end of a James Brown concert. Look in the mirror, view mirror. I'm gone. I'm gone. I got to go. Maceo, come on. Let's go. That's what we're talking about with this genius. This genius right here, that's what we're talking about. Lord, Lord, yes. And just 40 years old, man, the Lord going to use you in some mighty ways, man. And, 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 and the struggle, Lord, have mercy. The struggle is going to escalate in the next few, few for years. For all of us. For all of us. And the legacy that we're talking about and there's those select geniuses like Brother Jay-Z and a few others out there in, in their own way. You always, you, I love the way you're critical and be free. You always want to be free. But knowing that you have a role to play in the sense of the kind of playmaking that you've already made, you're making now, and you will make on into the future. If you were to, to have a, a son or a daughter... <laughs> um, if that were to happen, would what what kind of a world do you do you would you try to prepare them for? For um, that's a great question. Um, uh, a complex world that at the at the core um, at the core we all share the same fears. You know to just try to find your voice and who you are, you know, not, not to follow in any footsteps. You know, what are the questions that you have? You know, what are you, you going to do to change the world? How do you feel? You know, just that sort of, a, 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 you know, being an individual. You know, uh, again, I, I'll, I'll point to my friends because they're like uh, my greatest role models at times, at times not. But, you know, uh, one of my friend uh, Tata over there, he let his son come out in pajamas. And I thought that's strange at one point. I was like, why is he letting him come out in pajamas? And that's what his son wanted to wear. So he didn't impose on him, you can't go outside and not pajamas, some kind of costume. He actually came to like a very important event with a costume on. <laughs> it was like a groundbreaking ceremony for the Nets and he was sitting in front of me. It was very distracting. <laughs> with this Batman suit on. And, and I was thinking, that's quite odd for a child that comes from a kid from who used to live in Marcy Projects to have on a Batman outfit at a groundbreaking ceremony. But that's just the strength in his conviction. He let his, his son, that's what he wanted to wear. He's not telling him, you can't go out. You can't wear that. You can't do this. You know, he let him have the freedom, you know, of, you know, making his own choices and figure out for himself that maybe I shouldn't be 
Because I'm sure when he sees the pictures, it's not going to be a bright spot for him. You know, especially when his first girlfriend come over and his mother breaks out the pictures. I say, yeah, this is River at the groundbreaking ceremony with a Batman, so I don't think he's going to be very... It's not going to be one of his best moments. But just to, you know, letting him find his voice, letting him be an individual, you know, not telling him, you have to do this, you have to do this, you have to dress like this, put this on. Letting him be... That was the long of it. Let's listen to track number eight in closing. Yeah, yeah, I'm out at Brooklyn. Now I'm down in Tribeca, right next to the Nero. But I'll be hood forever. I'm the new Sinatra. And since I made it here, I can make it anywhere. Yeah, they love me everywhere. I used to cop in Harlem. All of my Dominicanos right there up on Broadway. Pull me back to that McDonald's. Took it to my stash spot, 560 State Street. Catch me in the kitchen like a Simmons whipping pastry. Cruising down A Street, off white Lexus. Driving so slow, but BK is from Texas. Me, I'm out there bed stop. Home of that boy Biggie Now I live on Billboard And I brought my boys with me Say what up to Tata Still sipping my ties Sitting courtside Nicks and Nets give me high five Nigga I be spiked out I could trip a referee Tell by my attitude That I most definitely from imperialist, I've always been suspicious of this empire state talk, you know what I mean? <laughs> but at the same time, I'm in deep solidarity with my indigenous brothers and sisters whose land they actually subjugated. But just on the musical tip, <laughs> <laughs> that's a beautiful song. Last good question yes. coming from you to Jay-Z. I think I've asked my questions, man. I, I think that um, it's just been a marvelous night for me. I, I'm Tina, inspired. I'm inspired. I'm ready, to, I'm ready to go on. Keep running. I'm inspired. Running. Thank you very much. Keep running. Keep running. Jay-Z, Jay-Z.